I, an idea I would like to get out there a little more is there's not just one way to do it. And I know we've talked about this a lot already uh, today, but there's so many approaches to alternative grading. And, you know, there's some common underlying principles. But I feel like it's, it's pointless and counterproductive to argue about what the best approach is. Everybody's situation is different. Everybody teaches different students in different classes in a different institution. Uh, there's things you can do that are better. And if you are doing those and you are thinking about them and caring about them, then if that's different from what I'm doing, that doesn't matter, right? There's not just one way to do it. And we can all be improving our grading and assessment practices in different ways. And that is okay. Welcome to the Grading Podcast, where we'll take a critical lens to the methods of assessing students' learning. From traditional grading to alternative methods of grading, we'll look at how grades impact our classrooms and our students' success. I'm Robert Bosley, a high school math teacher, instructional coach, intervention specialist, and instructional designer in the Los Angeles Unified School District and with Cal State LA. And I'm Sharona Krinsky, a math instructor at Cal State Los Angeles, faculty coach, and instructional designer. Whether you work in higher ed or K-12, whatever your discipline is, whether you are a teacher, a coach, or an administrator, this podcast is for you. Each week, you will get the practical, detailed information you need to be able to actually implement effective grading practices in your class and at your institution. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. As always, I'm Robert Bosley, one of your co-hosts here with Sharana Korinsky. How are hey, you Buzz. doing today, Sharana? I'm doing well. You know, I'm excited to be back on the pod, excited for people to be listening if they're still listening to us. So yeah, I'm doing well. How about you? I'm actually doing really good and I'm very excited today. We again have a very interesting guest, um, a math educator, uh, author, one of the original or- organizers of the Grading Conference. Dr. David Clark. Yeah. Hello and welcome. Hi, Hi Dave. How Hi. are you? Thanks for having me here. Yeah, it's Absolutely. good to see you guys. So just to add a little bit to Bozzi's introduction, you are, as far as I know, a PhD mathematician working at Grand Valley State mm-hmm. University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So correct me if any of that is incorrect. No, that you've, you've absolutely got it. Yeah, I'm an associate professor of math. Um, so... <laughs> Sorry, I don't know what else to actually add here. Um, that's fine. That's, well, yeah. well, so one of the first things we always like to do, uh, David, when we have a new guest on, is kind of get your origin story. Like, how did you get started in this world of alternative grading? Yeah, uh, so I can dig back pretty far to when I first started thinking about it. Uh, And I remember this very distinctly because I was a grad student and I was teaching Calculus 2. And I did a lot of Calculus 2 as a grad student. And you can imagine that's got a prerequisite of Calculus 1. And I was always really annoyed when students would come into Calculus 2 and they didn't really know the stuff from Calculus 1. Um, And I kind of recognized that as, yeah, I was a beginning teacher at that point. But what it inspired in me was this thought that wouldn't it be really neat if instead of just knowing that you know, this student came into Calc 2 with a B in Calc 1. I'd rather know what it was they actually did in Calc 1, right? How did they do on this? How did they do on that? And I could sort of see where they needed help and where they were solid already. Um, and so 
I was in my brain kind of inventing this thing that I would call standards-based grading now. Uh, but I was a grad student, and so I couldn't do that, right? I didn't have that level of control. And it all kind of went into the background until I had graduated and I was doing a postdoc and I was teaching and doing a, a professional development seminar, basically. And I learned about this thing called standards-based grading in that seminar. And I, it was just like a lightning bolt to me. I was like, oh my gosh, this is that thing that I was daydreaming about you know, a couple of years ago. And uh, I learned about it from this guy who was using it as it was almost incidental to what he was talking about. It was just, oh, yeah, I do this sort of thing because I really care about my students being able to show me what they know and, and to uh, show and understand things better rather than just having this one and done approach. And that caught me so much that I went and like the next class that I taught, I just decided I'm going to do that. I'm going to use standards based grading right away. Uh, and I did. And it was ridiculous like looking back at it now what i did was so complicated and so just hard to understand and deal with and it was really all about me right i wanted to know what the students were doing and it wasn't about them at all uh, but it, it was inadvertently really good like i i realized all the good things that were coming from it so much that i just never looked back after that point so yeah that's kind of funny because um you both have something that has been very common amongst almost everyone we've talked about talked to and something that wasn't very common most of the people including ourselves um there's some really bad thing that happened that brought us to alternative grading you know i i've talked about you know my student danny flores um you know we've heard from some several of our other people about just this really bad experience you didn't have that you were actually thinking about that beforehand that's that's I find that very interesting, but yet at the same time, your first attempt at it wasn't the most successful, which again, almost everyone we've ever talked to, the, the first, it's better and, you know, people don't look back, but that first one really is uh, an issue, which is part of the reason we're doing this podcast is because it is so common for that first one just to be a nightmare but we want to, mm -hmm. you know, I, I know when Sharona and I did this, um, and I know some of the other people that we've um, talked to, they didn't have a lot of those resources, you know, a lot of things to turn to. So that's, you know, like I said, one of the goals we're hoping to accomplish with this, with this podcast is putting some more resources out there so people don't get frustrated because it almost seems universal. That first one is, is rough. <laughs> and it's sort of like any kind of learning, right? You know, your first time around, maybe you don't quite get it all. You got to have a couple of go rounds before you, you really get to where you're happy with it. Um, but yeah, there, there are so many more resources available nowadays that I'm really glad you guys have this podcast because it would have been great to have that kind of support. I was just making it up, right? All I knew was like the name and the basic idea. <laughs> so. Well, and that, and that leads me to two questions, which is you, you mentioned resources. So I definitely want to hear you talk about the new book you have out with Robert Talbert, um, because that's going to be one of the big resources. Uh, but I also want to know, maybe before we get to that, so where are you now? So you started this standards-based journey. And how, how long, if you're willing to share, and, and or I might have just space cadetted and missed it, but how long have you, when was that original one? You're right. I didn't say that, actually. Um, the first time I used standards-based grading was I, 10 or 11 years ago. Uh, and so, yeah, ever since then, I've been using it at least occasionally and nowadays full-time. Uh, so it's been a lot of semesters of revision and <laughs> reattempting and, and simplifying, actually. 
So, so could you describe a little bit? Yeah. So could you describe a little bit your current practice, like what courses you have it in now and, and how that looks? Yeah. So I use some kind of alternative grading in every class that I teach. So these are things like uh, various calculus classes. I teach a lot of geometry for future teachers. So that's an upper level geometry class. Uh, in our math department, we have an introduction to proofwriting class, which is sort of a bridge between foundations classes and classes for the major. Uh, so any of these that I use, anything that I do, I use some kind of alternative grading, but it really looks different. It, it can look very different from class to class. And that's one of the things that uh, I figured out is that there really isn't a one size fits all solution to what kind of grading works best. So for example, in a calculus class, I, that tends to be very skills-based, right? There's a lot of fairly distinct, specific things I want to check that the student can complete that skill. And so I use what I would call standards-based grading, focusing on a bunch of individual skills. But in like that geometry class I mentioned, uh, there's some really high level stuff. We're writing proofs, which are, are both writing and mathematical and involve synthesizing ideas. And I'm not worried about the individual skills. I want to see if they can put it all together. Uh, and so I'm using what I would call specifications grading in that case, where I'm sort of looking holistically at students being able to put uh, all of these ideas together in a coherent manner. And uh, in between, sometimes I use elements of both when there's elements of both skills and holistically, you know, combining or synthesizing things. Um, so I, I used some specific names there, standards-based grading and specifications. I just think of those as ingredients, right? I can pick and choose based on the elements of the class and what I want to emphasize in my, in my assessment practice. Yeah, we, we kind of refer to those as the many different flavors of alternative grading. Some people like chocolate, some people like strawberry, some people like Neapolitan, you know, it all works. Yeah. As long as and, it's And they're all, basis. right, they're all useful in different places. Yeah, I yeah. wouldn't, I wouldn't pick just one flavor, you know, depends. Well, I think you're saying the same thing that, that we've come to realize, which is that context, it really matters. And another thing that I like to say now is I'm realizing that grading is almost the most important component of a relationship between a student and an instructor, that's, right? Uh, that's an important thing, yeah. Even even if, you know, some people, and, and I've done this, done this as well, try to remove grades to the as much as possible in the class, that's still an important element of that relationship then, right? Like the fact that you made that choice right. is an important part of how you're choosing to relate to students and what you're choosing to emphasize in that class. And yeah, you're right. It's absence or it's presence. It, it's, it overwhelms, in my opinion, it overwhelms whether we want it to or not in mm -hmm. our current structure, grading overwhelms every other element of the student instructor relationship. So it behooves us to be as intentional and values aligned as we can with our grading and our personal values as instructors. It would be lovely to live in a world where we didn't have to worry about grades at all, but that is not the world that we live in, right? And uh, they, serve a, they serve a purpose. And I think that if we're gonna use them, then it's important to do something that's, that's humane, right? As we're relating to students. Well, you have and the that, most amazing no. segues though. Obaz, you wanna? No, go ahead. I was gonna say, you know, you just said they serve a purpose. And that of course is the other thing I wanna talk to you about, which is that purpose. 
because you've had a lot of discussions and conversations about this, this word artificial scarcity. And I think it relates in part to the purpose of grades. So do you want to share some of your thoughts on sure. all that stuff? Um, so, yeah, so I, I like to think, I like to use this idea of artificial scarcity as sort of a useful lens to examine what matters and in grading, but just in, in almost anything in academia, for sure. Um, and the idea is really just something's artificially scarce if it is somehow arbitrarily limited, right? Somebody or something has chosen to limit its availability beyond whatever is, is inherent in it. So like the classic example is um, due dates for library books, right? That's, that's artificial. The book is not going to burst into flames if you keep it too long. Uh, but it's something that is a limit placed on the availability of the book. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? It's a useful thing to make sure that people have access to books and also that other people can get them when you're done. Uh, but when it comes to grades and to classes in general, I think there's all kinds of places where we put arbitrary limits on things that we just do that because that's the way it's always been done or because we think it's a great idea and it's not necessarily. And grades are very much one of those. So um, a classic example of this would be curving grades, by which I mean, so I actually uh, in college learned a rather different meaning of curving than I think it's actually used. So what I'm talking about is things like fitting grades under a normal curve, right? Expecting grades to follow some sort of bell-shaped distribution where only a few people can get an A and only a few can have an F. And there's a whole bunch in the middle in the C. And it doesn't matter what score they meant that you're sort of fitting everybody into their position relative to each other. And that's a form of artificial scarcity. It's saying that there can only be so many A's, that there, no matter what happens, there cannot be more than you know, 10 or 20% A's. Um, at that the, the vast bulk, you know, 40% of people in the middle are going to earn C's. And that's essentially saying that grades mean only what they mean relative to other people. It only means that you are doing well or doing poorly in competition with others. And I, I couldn't disagree with that more, right? If I want to, if I have to give students a grade, then I want it to mean something specific about what they've done, what they've learned, what they've achieved, what I've seen them do and grow in my class. And everything I just said there doesn't refer to any other students at all, right? It's what did that student achieve? And so if they did everything they need to, to earn an A, then they should earn that A. I should know what it takes to earn an A. They should know what it takes to earn an A. And if they do it, they should earn that, uh, regardless of whether the next person overdid it or not. And so in my mind, making grades artificially scarce through things like curving, or even just having the belief that it's bad if too many students are able to earn an A, uh, that's actually a harmful thing, right? It's, it's using grades for a purpose that is more harmful than it is good. I feel like I wandered all over the place in that thing. No, um, you're good. <laughs> not at all. We'll let it that bit out. <laughs> but, well, so then what do you think the purpose of grades is then? Um, I think that I would like them to represent what a student actually learns. Uh, and so that's the goal. I realize that that can't always happen. There's all sorts of other factors that inevitably creep into them, but I want the purpose of a grade to be simply to represent learning. Uh, and so not represent learning relative to someone else, representing learning relative to some sort of clear standard that I've set or that somebody has set. And, and do you think that grades do that? Do your current grades do that better? Like what, like what's where you stand on all that? 
<laughs> I think this is this is a good question. Um, I think that using different alternative grading approaches, a big goal is to improve and get closer to that goal. It's sort of an ideal, right? That I would like grades to have those qualities. And do they? Yes, to a reasonable extent, and more so than I think traditional grades, which include all sorts of factors that definitely are not about learning, are not about, uh, they're more about the student's environment or the student's behavior than it is about what the student has actually done and achieved. Um, I think it's important to realize that like alternative grading practices are not magic bullets, right? They don't magically make, uh, you know, they don't magically perfectly represent what's going on in a student's head. That's literally impossible to see, but we can get a lot closer to that ideal by thinking carefully about what matters, about making that really clear, about grading in a way that attempts to represent whether a student has achieved something specific or not, and trying to get rid of a bunch of things that are irrelevant to that, like curving, like things having to do with behavior, like things having to do with, with uh, meeting deadlines, for example. So would you say, just trying to think about what you're saying right now, Dave, would you be more confident in the current system that students who got, say, an A or a B, that that's an accurate representation, but that maybe students who didn't pass, it might not be an accurate representation, like they might know more, but other factors have come into play? Because I feel like, for me, there's a, there's a conflation between a student who shows me they don't know something and a student who fails to show me that they do know something due to an external factor. And both of those might not pass by class. Yeah, absolutely. So that there's, so maybe a way to think about that would be using some sort of alternative grading system. Students who pass, pass because they have achieved specific things, right? So that, that's a, a positive achievement, right? They've done that thing. And you're absolutely right that if they don't pass, right? If they don't meet those specific requirements, then there's a good question about why not, right? I mean, maybe because they didn't learn the things and so they weren't able to show me what they learned, um, but maybe because they've got a kid at home and they do not have the time to do the stuff in my, you know, in my uh, class or because they've got a job that takes up way too much time, but they have to have it if they're going to stay in school uh, or they were not super interested in my class and they didn't want to make the effort. So it's like all of these different ways that a student can fail in a class basically, right? Or not earn the grade that they want. Um, and so in some sense, what we're doing with alternative grading is we're saying, well, these are the things I care about that matter. You can positively demonstrate them to me. And I would love to live in a world where I could filter out all those things that lead to sort of false negatives, right? Where a student does poorly because they can't, or let me say that again. I'd love to live in a world <laughs> where we filter out all those false negatives, right? Where a student does poorly for reasons that is not related to their learning. Um, and we can do better at that by like removing things that we put in, right? Where we reduce a student's grade for reasons that are irrelevant, at least as far as learning goes. Um, but at least in the limited context of choosing my grading policy, I can't do that uh, when it comes to a student's time, a student's interest, a student's uh, ability to devote time because they have the resources to do that. I always love talking to you because you make me think. I mean, we've been talking for like four years and every time I'm just oh, yeah. like, huh, oh. hadn't thought of it that way. That's just what's so fun. Oh, it's I think it's that's fun. What... I mean, go ahead. The trick in all of this is like, we can kind of talk about, I would like the world to be a certain way. And then also the world is a certain way. 
and I can use the power that I have to try and push the world in, in the direction I'd like and to try to, you know, get rid of the things I don't. I, I have that sort of control around me, right? But I can't make everything better. Right. And that's you know, probably I, for the best. If I could just had the power to change everything in the world, like that would, that'd be, there's movies about that. Right? <laughs> so. Well, and I love what you're saying about, you know, I'd like the world, the world to be this way. This is the world we live in. I feel like some of the people in our community are just like, no, I'm not going to accept that. I'm just going to push really hard to completely just burn it all down. Right. We have the burn it all down folks. Um, and, and Boz knows this about me. I'm in the, I want to drag 80% of the people with us group. So I don't need <laughs> yes. to burn it all down. I can let the burn it all down. People work on burning it all down while I try to get the 80% of people who will do anything moving. Um, and I, I think there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with wanting to burn it all down. I mean, I, I understand the feeling there. Uh, but I'm very much, I very much agree with you, Sharona, that um, I think the way to make large scale change to sort of improve the world of education to the extent that we can is to find ways to bring people along, right? To say, hey, here's some stuff we can do. I mean, I'm a mathematician. We think about adding up lots of little things very often. Adding up a lot of little changes does make a difference. Um, and that's kind of the approach that I, I think Robert and I have taken in the book in particular is there's a lot you can do and there's a little you can do and you should do what it is you can do as opposed to if you're not doing everything that is possible, if you are not going all out, then too bad, right? Then, then you're not doing enough. Uh, I do not believe that. And, and I probably land somewhere in the middle because, uh, and, and Boz has heard this story too. So the first time I met Robert Talbert in person, I was at PolyTeach, which is a one day conference that Cal Poly Pomona puts on. And the keynote that day was Uri Treisman from the Dana Center. And mm -hmm his message was basically the only kind of innovation that sticks is disruptive innovation. And the reason that that was such a watershed moment for me is I went back to my university and sat my co-coordinator down for statistics and said, okay, I wasn't going to try to do this, but now I'm going to try to do this. I want you to convert the entire course to standards-based grading, which for me was disruptive. It wasn't like people sometimes ask me, can you do a little bit of this alternative grading? And I'm like, of course, you could do whatever you want. And then the secret me is going, no, 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 no. Just jump off the deep end. Just go. Just go. You got to go. So it's interesting. I'm probably a little bit more in between the lots of little things add up and the burn it all down. I'm probably leaning more halfway between those two. I don't know, Boz, what do and you think? I think, well, I, I want to say you're, you're mm -hmm. absolutely right. You got to know yourself, right? You got to know what it is that's going to do it for you. And if you are a person who's like, I got to jump in or else it just isn't going to happen, then you got to jump in, right? Um, and if you're a, I want to, I want to stick my toe in the water and see what happens, then stick your toe in the water. Like, absolutely. I, I think the danger is actually when people say, this is the right way, you must do things in a certain way, or else you're doing it wrong. And that's really where, I mean, there's, there's things I can encourage and discourage. But I think that saying, this is right and this is wrong is more harmful than than helpful in this case. Absolutely. Completely I've, agreed. Yeah, I've, I've done, you know, because I didn't start out going into alternative grading when I started looking at equity in grading. And, you know, we I actually, um, one of the other people we've had on the show, um, Joe Zacola and I, 
you know, we spent a year converting our entire school into not giving zeros for blank work, like just trying to show the mathematical deprimant that a zero does in a hundred point um, system and just how unfair that punishment was. Uh, so, you know, trying to take this one, one aspect of some of the things that we brought up in one of our early episodes with, you know, about the problems with traditional grading and just trying to, you know, convert people on just that, um, which, you know, if that's all you're comfortable with doing is looking at a couple of these, um, elements of, of traditional grading that isn't the most equitable or most mathematically sound, great, change that. I mean, that's better than it was. However, I yeah, I found I was doing a lot of those little things, and it was like, okay, this feels better, but it's still not there. And it wasn't until I jumped completely away from all points and percentages and averages that grading made sense to me. And and you, I think that often happens, right? You you get pulled in. You you're, discover that. Uh, well, this is how I felt after my first time using standards-based grading, which I did jump all the way into. Right for everything I've said, I I, I jumped in feet first there, <laughs> or head first. I don't know all the way. Um, I both felt like it was just ridiculous and difficult and and super complicated, and I was never willing to go back because I could tell like, yeah, this is, this is good. This is way better than what I was doing. Like I felt morally better about what I was doing as, a, as in grading. So what, what was better? Like, can you get uh, some specifics? So this is funny because it, what was better wasn't any of the things that I meant to be better. I mean, I, I intended to have a better view of what exactly it was that students were succeeding at. Like, what do they know? What specific things? And I did because I had a list of standards and I could see sort of almost a barcode of, oh, the student's able to do these things and not those. So that was great. But the things that really made it feel like I was doing something meaningfully better were all about the students themselves. So like, for example, um, almost by accident, I built in this ability to, you know, try again on a future, uh, in that class, it was quizzes, right? Try to meet a standard in a future quiz and, uh, without a penalty. And that suddenly made office hours like really matter, right? Like students cared about the feedback I was giving and they wanted to understand it and they'd come in and they would talk in, they'd ask me questions in terms of the course content. Like it wasn't, why is this a seven out of 10? It was, okay, I'm having trouble with this specific thing. Can we, can we talk about that? Here's what I tried and here's why I think I'm having trouble with it. And that was just, uh, everything about that was amazing, right? The office hours were better, but I could see the students were actually using my feedback. They were caring about coming back and relearning things. Like they were engaging in a feedback loop and the grading system was encouraging that. It, was, it wasn't discouraging it in the way that traditional grades often do. And uh, so those things were just they made me realize that those were possible in a class, right? It was possible for students to care, to want to relearn something. I mean, humans do that naturally, right? They want to learn something. And that if you don't discourage it, and if you incentivize it, they will. Uh, the other thing that, that it was just a bizarre consequence that happened was, um, so I was at the University of Minnesota at that time, and they have like two days during the week of Thanksgiving, and then three days off. And just before those two days where I had like one day of class, 
I had students saying, can we please have a quiz? Like we would love to have a quiz. And they're like, on the Monday of Thanksgiving break, who does that, right? Who wants a quiz? But it was because it was a chance. It was a chance for them to show me what they knew. And I had just never had an experience like that before. I was like, what, what is going on here? This is like some alternate universe. But it was the alternate universe where people were actually just behaving like people, where they care, they want to know, they want to learn. And I wasn't trying to stop them from it. Yeah, see, that's that's interesting that you bring up kind of those office hours because, you know, oftentimes when I tell the story of my first time doing alternative grading and just how much of a disaster it really was, but yet I've never gone back because when it came, you know, to the end of the semester, the conversations I was having with my students wasn't, you know, how many more points do I need to get to this grade? You know, can I get extra credit? It was okay, what do I need to still show, you know, or what understanding am I not getting about descriptive statistics? What do I need to show you about, you know, inferential statistics? So that conversation going from, you know, gaming and this kind of um, grabbing of points to actually talking about the math is, is what sold me. And I've never gone back. I've never had a student ask for, you know, a group of students ask for quiz right before Thanksgiving, but... <laughs> <laughs> that's really funny it was it was I, you can tell it stuck with me right <laughs> so. so you mentioned though that you know you have this new book out why did you write Absolutely. a book i mean you're a mathematician like we're not supposed to write books right <laughs> well you know um yeah so uh the book is grading for growth uh co-authored with robert talbert and uh yeah I, the I think the thing that really drove both of us to do this was any time that we would talk with people about what we're doing, right? What kind of alternative grading we're using or whatever, uh, the thing that would very often that, that people would say would be something like, oh, that sounds neat, but you couldn't possibly do that in, you know, fill in the blank with their situation. Oh my God, right? we say that so and often. And it doesn't matter what the situation was. Like if I was talking about an upper level class, oh, that's great, but you couldn't possibly do that in an intro class. And if I told them about an intro class, that's great, but I teach this upper level class, it would never work, right? Like it felt like people were, were interested, uh, but also couldn't imagine sometimes how it could work. Uh, and so really the heart of the book is just a whole bunch of case studies, right? Interviews with people about, how they used alternative grading and made it work in every situation we could possibly find. Big classes, small classes, intro level, upper level, lab classes, huge classes, um, just anything, you know, any kind of discipline, any kind of institution, any student bodies that you could think of, right? It, um, the goal is basically, and I'm sure this will not happen, but will be to put to rest those questions, right? And say, there's a way to do it, check it out, it's in the book. That, that's so funny because Sharona and I were in a meeting, um, a training earlier today. I won't mention what it was, but, and we had that exact, because it was a mixed group of educators and we had that exact thing come up. The number of times <laughs> I get, okay, I'm talking to a mathematician and they're like, well, I can understand how in English that would work. You know, they do rewrites and rubrics, but that doesn't work in math. And then I go talk to the English people and they're like, well, I understand how that works in math because you guys are all procedural based. I literally had a dental hygienics program tell me that they could understand how it worked everywhere else, but in dental hygienics. And so I do have one ultimate answer now personally, which is I will challenge any 
field that has a licensing exam because the licensing exam is the ultimate in alternatively graded because very few licensing exams have a limit on the number of times you can take the licensing exam. Now it's expensive and there's all kinds of constraints and you may have to restudy and all this stuff, but they don't even give you your score if you pass the licensing exam, you know, the bar, the boards. And by the way, do you know how many times it took your doctor to pass their boards? I <laughs> no don't. No one cares about that later. No right? one cares. Nope. So I've also yeah. recently, I was in a, a presentation at a conference and someone said, well, how do you account for how many times it took them to pass this in your grading system? And I said on a microphone in front of the whole group, why do we care? Yep. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty, we funny. care, we care that you got there. Right. I mean, that, that is what matters. And yeah, you are absolutely right. Uh, licensing and, exams are the classic. And it's every single one of them. I mean, you know, I, I've been pulled over more than a few times in my life. I've never got an extra fine because it, you know, I took two times to pass my driving test when I was 16 years old. Like it, from the simplest to that to, you know, any kind of licensing, CPA, exam, bar, no one, you know, none of those average the scores. None of those punish you for the first mistakes other than maybe having to pay the ex, you know, to do it again. But yet we seem to think, oh, but we have to, you know, we, we have to count everything. What do you mean? Let a student retake something without averaging the grade. How will they know? And another thing they all have in common is they have a really clear set of standards, right? What is it you have to be able to do? Uh, what is it you need to be able to show that you know or can achieve? Um, and so even if your score is, is points or something like that in the end, it's all based on were you able to do these things or not? Yep. So I have heard a lot when I talk to people about this that I'm advocating for chaos. I'm advocating for unlimited chances to do everything until the last second and it's going to get buried. Have you gotten that pushback and what do you say to it? Yeah, I have definitely heard that. And it, it's an interesting thing. I feel like people tend to jump to interesting conclusions when they hear about alternative grading, right? And some of it is that it couldn't possibly work for them. And others are that things have to sort of be done all or nothing, right? That you have to allow unlimited reattempts or else you don't use them at all. Or you have to like get rid of all deadlines or, or lock them all down as hard as possible. And no, that, that is not the case at all. So like, let's talk about reassessments, right? If we're gonna give students multiple opportunities to do things, that doesn't mean unlimited opportunities. It means multiple opportunities and that there's no penalty for using them. Um, but we live in a finite world of finite resources. We have to put some sorts of limits on things, um, both for ourselves, right? As people who are grading, like we, we need to have a life and, and be able to do our own things. Um, but also because it helps to encourage students to have to think carefully about what it is that they're doing and to encourage them to do it well. Um, and so, yeah, you can, you can put limits on reassessments, right? How many or how frequently or, things that need to be done in order to unlock them, like attempting some practice problems or whatever. Um, you can you can put limits on anything like that to organize it. You can make a nice regular schedule so that everybody knows exactly when reattempts are going to happen, so that there's not even any chaos involved in that. Um, 
you can do all of these things while still giving students the flexibility of having another chance. I could actually, I could probably say that a little more carefully by like spelling out the types of things, but I don't know if you guys want, want that. It's whatever you want to say. That's the beauty is that unlike a book where you actually have to have non-scarce, non-artificially scarce limits on like pages because it costs money to print. That's not artificial. (laughs) Um, At the moment, podcasting has fewer of those artificially scarce uh, things. It's really pretty much just how long people are willing to listen to it, Um, which is kind of one of the reasons we wanted to do, I wanted to do a podcast is Mm -hmm. I couldn't tolerate reading, writing the way you guys do. I write very well, but the (laughs) thought of spending hundreds of hours writing just makes me want to puke. Quite frankly, it was a fun. Um, it was quite a process, that's for sure. <laughs> but, yeah, because uh, on top of the book, um, you also um, co-do the blog with Robert Tubber, correct? The and, Grading for Growth blog. Yeah, so the the Grading for Growth blog started actually with us basically workshopping ideas for the book. I mean, it was practice writing, it was getting ideas out there, and seeing how people reacted to them. Uh, and then it kind of took on a life of its own and we're still going, the book is out and we're, we're still blogging about things. Um, it's been really fun as a way to reach people as a way to like put down ideas in medium length form, right? Not a, not tweet length, but not also book length. Um, and, and to get feedback from people and, and sort of also be able to do a deeper dive into very narrow ideas, even than we could do in the book, right? So like, you know, I can have a post about artificial scarcity in, in a lot of detail, far more than I could fit into a few pages, you know, in a book that's supposed to cover all this different range. Well, in full disclosure, I, I've written a couple of things for that blog. <laughs> Absolutely. In- including... We need to get Bosley on there too. Yeah. Well, um, we co-wrote one of them. We did co-write one of them. You did do that. That's right. Yeah, we had thrown on another one. Well, and and to clarify, co-writing with Bosley and me means I write and he edits, Um, which is (laughs) actually a very fair, it's a fair uh, division of work. So, You know the famous quote from, I think it was Pascal, right? I'm sorry this letter is so long. I didn't have time to make it shorter. Yes. So (laughs) that's a big part of the work. Yes. So if you could put a couple things out into the world, a couple of ideas or a couple of, of hopes, you know, where, where do you go from here? What, what would you like to use this platform to say, as opposed to the blog or the book or. Um, I, an idea I would like to get out there a little more is there's not just one way to do it. And I know we've talked about this a lot already, uh, today, but there's so many approaches to alternative grading and, you know, there's some common underlying principles, but I feel like it's, it's pointless and counterproductive to argue about what the best approach is. Everybody's situation is different. Everybody teaches different students in different classes in a different institution. Uh, there's things you can do that are better. And if you are doing those and you are thinking about them and caring about them, then if that's different from what I'm doing, that doesn't matter, right? There's not just one way to do it. And we can all be improving our grading and assessment practices in different ways. And that is okay. Uh, And if you want to burn it all down, awesome. And if you want to dip your toe in the water, awesome. And that it would be really helpful if we don't judge each other too much for that. So that's a combination of ideas. I definitely want to be out there. The other thing, 
go, go ahead. I was just going to say kind of on that um, note, uh, one of our keynotes, um, you know, this year in the grading conference was just, you know, about that. And I mean, it, it was a phenomenal keynote. Um, and Trona, can you help me out? I, I'm drawing a blank. Are you talking on... about the one by Dr. Lindsay Masland? Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Um, we definitely need to invite on this once I make sure she gets her speaker payment from the conference. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't know if, if you've had a chance to um, go back and listen to any of those. Um, but yeah, that, that keynote was exactly what you're talking about right now. And, and I've read a number of things that, uh, that Lindsay has written and gotten ideas. Like, I'm like, oh, that's fantastic. I am totally going to go do that in my own class. Um, this community has so much of that stealing each other's hubcaps, right, of, of getting ideas and making it work for you and putting it together. And I think that is fantastic. And it's a sign of a healthy, growing and, and thoughtful group of people. Now, did you have another idea that you wanted to get out there? Yeah. The other one I wanted to get out there, yeah, was uh, it's possible. It is doable, right? Like you can use, you can improve your grading in whatever your situation is. Um, so not only is there not just one way to do it, but that it's not impossible for anybody in any situation. There's so many little tweaks or big things that you can do um, that if you want to make it happen, you can. And from what I understand from our interview with um, Robert, that's a big um, goal and point of your book, is it not? That kind of Absolutely. showing the, the roadmap for someone that wants to try this. Because, um, I mean, I've read a lot of great books um, talking about some of these issues, um, you know, some of the, the Guskies and the O'Connor and so many other great books, but not a lot of them on, okay, now you're sold. Here's kind of a, a roadmap to get you started, to at least get you going until you can start figuring it out for your own. And from what Robert was saying, that's that's a big goal of this of your book, correct? Yeah, absolutely. It's a combination of case studies to sort of be inspirational, right? To see how people have, have achieved better grading in different circumstances, um, but also trying to like abstract out what are the common features, what are things that are specific that we can do to guide new people into it. So uh, among other things, that means there's a workbook, right? So there's a step-by-step -step workbook where we try to be flexible enough in our steps that you can pick and choose the things that you've noticed from the case studies or elsewhere. Um, and we guide you through sort of assembling them to make it work for you. Uh, but also it's so like, we literally have a frequently asked questions chapter, right? <laughs> uh, we literally have a what to expect and pitfalls to avoid thing, just like practical on the ground advice, right? So take a look at the model, get inspiration, put it together with the workbook know which things you've got to watch out for and which thing, what you should expect and when you should go talk to somebody else and make sure that what you're doing is sensible. Like just all the practical stuff that you get by having someone who knows what they've, who's done it before they're with you. Uh, we can't be in the room with you, but we kind of tried to make that happen with the book as much as we could. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to get, to getting my copy. I'm, it, you know, I am I too. <laughs> 
Well, the problem yeah, is I that like the... Bosley wants a signed one, so I've got to get one, get Ooh. it sent to you and Robert, have you sign it and send it back, and then it should get here by Christmas. So That's yeah. going to take a while. <laughs> I, saw, I saw today that somebody has a physical copy in their hand, and it's not Robert or me. <laughs> so oh. it's out there. But well, well, it didn't help yet. that your publisher got bought right when, um, when yeah. the book was coming out, so that, that was not helpful. I'm sure there's a lot of confusion right there. Yeah. Now it, it is already available on like Kindle and on um, e versions of the book, correct? That is true. Yeah, you can you can get several different ebook formats uh, right away. But if you want the paperback copy, that's uh, still coming through the mail. And the other thing I was I was thinking about one reason I'm so glad the book is out now, um, Dave, is that you know Bosley and I we cross over communities. So we cross from K-12 to, to higher ed, um, and we're in multiple different professional communities. Like I'm now in the engineering education community and I'm in the math community because of the work I'm doing. And there's so much buzz out there now. Like so many people have heard about it, but it's at this very superficial level. And I'm afraid that people are gonna jump in and try it. And there's not one right way but there's a lot of wrong ways. And there's a lot of ways where you can accidentally recreate the problems with traditional grading if you haven't had the opportunity to learn what those are. God knows I've done it in my alternative grading. Um, so there, there actually are some wrong things that you can do by accident that are harmful. So I'm really excited that these references, and that's why the timing on the launch of this podcast is now, is we're trying to get this information out in as many formats as we can so that people who are hearing about it because there's misinformation rampant mm -hmm. out there about what this is and i think there's been a number of of news articles and things in the chronicle and inside higher ed and places like that that um they don't do a great job of representing usually what is called ungrading right, right. i i do not like the word ungrading i think it is wildly overloaded um it's kind of an example of what you mean where like people hear it and they think they know what it means right away like it's at a very surface level um but it sort of has communicated a lot of misconceptions and and had some of those articles have even encouraged weird weird misconceptions like for example a really bizarre one that has shown up in more than one place is that if you don't give students like if you don't use a punitive grade right so if you don't like use grades as a way to punish students for not doing something well and then permanently include in their grade if you don't do that that they're not going to learn like no that actually closes off the learning right there it's, it's a stops it right in its tracks right. or the idea that alternative grading means not giving any feedback that's the strangest one that i've heard it's the complete opposite yeah of it's that. like if you but take away sort of, points then they're not getting any feedback how are you going to give feedback if you don't yeah. give them like six out of ten it's like words right. Well, <laughs> you use words. <laughs> yeah, you use words, which is a much better way to do it. And, and I guess that's what I'm reacting to is, you know, we, we all, I know that we had a, I think it was a Chronicle article that went around, like, you're all doing ungrading wrong. And, I, you know, I hated that language. And yet there are ways to do this wrong. Not that there's one right way, but there are definitely some bad things. Um, and so yeah. I'm not and, a fan of anything that's going to cause an instructor to collapse under the weight of grading. Definitely yeah, not. So there's sort of... 
there's ways to do it wrong because you're like setting yourself up for failure, right? Like, you know, or setting the students, yeah, or setting things. the students up yeah. for failure. I mean, and, you know, there's definitely yeah. some people who've taken flexibility and deadlines to mean no deadlines, and you are setting up a group of people who mm -hmm. need structure for failure. Yeah. And on the flip side of that coin, like you can absolutely set up a, a harsh, punitive alternative grading structure, right, in which you're essentially punishing students for not knowing something and and you know maybe you give them multiple opportunities but what you're fundamentally doing is is somehow hurting them right um so like it there's a lot of the philosophy and like why am i doing these things that that does really matter and thinking carefully about that will make a big difference exactly what's next for you like the book is is coming out um uh, are you getting back into the classroom? Because you were on um, a sabbatical to help with yeah. the book, right? So yeah, so what's right. coming the, up the book next? Was, yeah, so the book was actually a sabbatical project for me, although it's extended pretty far on either side of that one semester. Um, so yeah, I am teaching full-time, as usual, um, and using things that I've learned from the book in my classroom. That, that has Doing these interviews for the book has actually made a big difference in my own practice as well. Um, and continuing to blog and giving a lot of talks about alternative grading and trying to sort of spread the word that it's doable and it's possible. Um, so yeah, trying to make that incremental, encouraging, positive change um, that we sort of talked about earlier. So, so if someone did want to, you know, have you come to their their institution or to some sort of group to do a talk, um, how would they get a hold of you? How how do they um, you know, look for that information. Um, so the best thing to do is probably to email me directly. Well, we'll post it. We'll put, we'll put, put a link to your there. email um, and they can also, they can that. always also use the contact us form on our website and we will forward that as well. So we will put those in so the I'll show notes. So I'll start that fresh. Yeah. So, so the best thing to do is probably to email me directly. And, and I know you can put my contact info in the show notes. Um, and if you Google for David Clark, you're going to find a lot of me out there, but David Clark <laughs> math GVSU tends to find the right one. Um, and I do have a page with information about, uh, about speaking and workshops and things like that. Aren't there multiple and, uh, David Clark mathematicians even? There are, I teach geometry from a book written by David Clark and it's not me. <laughs> so yeah, so we'll definitely so be put very careful with which man, with which David Clark you find. Right. So we'll definitely put contact information in the show notes. And like I said, people can also message us on the contact us form on the website and we will forward that information as well. So anything else you want to share before we wrap up for this episode? Last thoughts, Bosley, last thoughts. No, just as always, I, I want to thank you. Um, you know, when we had um, Robert on, he, he kept talking about how much of a genius you were. So it, it's <laughs> it's great to, you know, get to get to get you on here and really um, have you talk about this and hear from your your perspective on this uh, on the book and on so many other things. So thank you. So I want to say it was really fun writing a book with Robert because we bring very different strengths to the whole thing, right? So like the writing versus editing, right? we both were writing and we were both editing. But um, yeah, Robert and I just think of things differently and putting all that together into the book made the whole thing a lot stronger. Um, and that was, it was a great experience. Well, yeah, he, he told a story about how, 
you guys would write something and then you would get on together and basically just read what the other one had written and <laughs> listen to the other person read it. And... So if your listeners want to know what that's like, we actually put a, uh, a I think it was a screencast. Of yeah, that we actually have that link for our show notes as well. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, yes. that was fun. And, and like, and if you listen to that, you'll also get all the just random asides and stupid jokes and everything else that, you know, that happens along the way. Well, and one thing I noticed with talking to Robert that I actually wanted to ask you about as well, um, you know, a lot of people have said to you guys, you're, you're really brave for being so willing to admit your mistakes uh, in this process. And I wonder if it's because you have internalized that failure is not a stigma. The failure is not failure. How do you, how do you feel about that thought for yourself? Um, I think that's a, great way to look at it. And yes, I'm going to, I'm going to embrace that. I mean, it's true, right? There's, I do not think of like, if I design a complicated and maybe not super successful grading system, I'm not going to feel great about it, but I don't think about that as that's the end of it, right? That's okay. I can do better and I'm going to do better next time. Like it's, it's not a permanent failure. It's just something that was rough and I'm going to do better. Um, but also I, I know I have tried to start speaking out more about the things that did not work and the ways that stuff went south in my classes because not enough people talk about it. I mean, you see people succeeding at things. And I mean, this is the social media problem, right? You only see the curated version of their lives. Um, and then that is not good for everybody else because you're not, you don't actually see what's real there and you get a fake, a false impression of it. Um, and so, yeah, talking more about what didn't work and why it didn't work and just trying to do sort of a, a live blogging, you know, postmortem on something that I screwed up, uh, I hope is helpful to people. And, and we certainly get lots of feedback that it is just both to understand what not to do and to see that that's totally how it works, even for people like us who are, you know, supposedly experts on these things. Well, and when I thought of this idea of doing a podcast, Bosley's the first person I told, but you and Robert were numbers two and three. And I thought one of y'all was going to tell me I was insane. <laughs> and instead, all three of you went, great idea. And I'm like, oh, crud. Now I got to do yeah. it. Go out there and do it. Right? Exactly. Absolutely. So this is your fault, and too. Like, <laughs> if, you, if you think, I mean, if you... If you go into it being like, I can only be perfect at this, it isn't going to work, <laughs> right? No. Um, I mean, that that's just nothing works that way in the world. We're definitely um, on a actually, learning curve I, with this. That's for sure. I am just back from a, uh, a summer camp for middle schoolers who really love math. And one of the hardest lessons for them is, you know, they're at this camp with a bunch of other people who are like that and like, oh, it actually can, we can actually struggle doing some of the math here because we're really challenging them. And it's a hard lesson, right? A lot of them are not used to it. Um, and we work really hard to just normalize that. And I think being visible and, and talking about your failures is a way to do that. See, that, that's interesting you bring that up. Um, I, I, I absolutely, I've spent some time in the middle school and I, I could, you couldn't pay me enough to teach at the middle school level. But I did spend um, two summers doing a you know in a um cryptology camp mm -hmm. with you know s students that were about that were just leaving um sixth or seventh grade going into seventh or eighth grade so at middle school age but yeah students that were um 
advanced in mathematics and were finding mathematics interesting and bringing them in to show them this whole field that was, you know, I, I definitely knew nothing about it when I was their age, despite where I was mathematically. But it, it was so much fun working with, with those students. But at the same time, oh, my God, I'd never I could never teach at that level. But and yeah, see, I it, taught it was... sixth grade for like six years, not in math, but I love that age group. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a it's a fun age group. And like brains are changing so much, like you can make a really big difference in that age group. But also cryptology is fantastic because like the story of cryptology is just people repeatedly failing right over and over and over not being able to decrypt the message and just trying something new until something sticks like yeah you, you never get it on the first try yeah and it, it was fun seeing you know these you know early teens or even pre-teen you know 12 13 year olds in a subject that they felt very very confident about and completely struggling and how they reacted to it and just how much fun they ended up having with it it, it was a lot of fun I, I got to do that it was i think a two or three week um camp and i got to do that for two summers um back to back it was a lot of fun well that's fantastic yeah well i think we uh probably are at about time to wrap this up i want to again thank you so much you you have been one of the key mentors for me on this journey and an inspiration to actually get off my you know what and and do this podcast and and talk about it publicly so i'm gonna thank you i i know that the the listeners of the podcast are just really gonna enjoy this conversation because you're just fun to talk to yeah, and then you def this definitely was the first but will not be the last time that we have you on I'm yeah sure. you're not off the hook <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I look forward to next time. And uh, I'm glad that the two of you are doing the good work of making this podcast and spreading the word and, and right doing the things that the rest of us aren't. <laughs> so thank you for doing them. Please share your thoughts and comments about this episode by commenting on this episode's page on our website, www.thecreatingpod.com. Or you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. If you would like to suggest a future topic for the show or would like to be considered as a potential guest for the show, please use the Contact Us form on our website. The Grading Podcast is created and produced by Robert Bosley and Sharona Krinsky. The full transcript of this episode is available on our website.